Nima Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Job chapter 29? And I will read the whole chapter. This is a sort of run-on from Job's final answer to the three friends, his answer to Bildad, and he carries on for a few chapters here. Um, And this is part of one of the most legal parts of the book, but this particular chapter 29 describes who he was before his troubles, then 30 tells us about his troubles, and 31 he brings his charge. Um, So this is Job reflecting on who he had been. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all round me, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out, to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, It approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me and my bow ever new in my hand. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, And I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. 
So we're looking for the wisdom of the cross in Job. We have considered three general objections to finding Christ in the book of Job, three objections to a typological reading of the book, and I have attempted to remove them. The door therefore stands open before us to embrace such a reading. But should we go through it? The details of the text must decide, and so to the text, looking now for specific evidence that connects Job to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to offer you four typal connections between Job and Jesus, three in this session, the fourth tomorrow. There are, by the way, many others, um, and I'm sorry that we don't have time to go through all of them. The first and the foremost argument for understanding and proclaiming Job as a type of Christ is the character and pattern of the events in the book. Job quite simply begins in extraordinary heights and then he's brought down to the depths and yet as he's brought down to the depths he remains obedient and maintains his righteousness. And as a result of that obedience, he is at the end of the book exalted higher than he ever was at the beginning. Just to unpack that a bit. At the beginning of the book, he is uh, both morally and materially exalted. Morally exalted. Chapter 1, verse 1. Blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The Lord asks Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Chapter 1, verse 8. But not only morally, but also materially exalted. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. Ten. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. 10,000. 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys, 1,000 or 10 hundreds, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And notice the repeated tens, a, a number indicating perfection and completion. So in conduct and in status, Job was in the beginning without peer or rival, but he was then brought down to the depths in his afflictions, but all without cause. He himself says in chapter 9, verse 17, but God also says it in chapter 2, verse 3. So it was indeed without cause. And yet in the midst of that terrible affliction, which he didn't deserve, he remained righteous. So that at the end of the book, in chapter 42, verses 7 and 8, he is vindicated by God when God says that he spoke rightly of him and therefore receives his exaltation. Uh, he is able to intercede for his friends who spoke wrongly of God so that they can be forgiven and he is lifted up, we are told, higher than he was in the beginning. Chapter, 10, uh, chapter 42, verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Or verse 12. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his 
beginning. And his family and his friends come and they bring him their treasures. They bring him money and each of them brings him a gold ring. Now, as I summarize that story, and, and the big thing I've omitted in the middle of it is some of the detail of his afflictions. He is struck on the cheek, for example, and spat at. As I, as I describe that story in brief, I take it that it's ringing some bells for you. Because Job maps out in advance the career path of the Son of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He prefigures the messianic pattern, because that too is the pattern of God the Son, beginning in glory with his Father, the glory that he prays would be restored in John 17, coming down in human form to the very depths of obedience even to death on the cross, the slave's death, maintaining in the midst of that his righteousness and obedience to his father, and therefore as his reward, being exalted to what for him and his human nature are new heights he had not attained before, as he becomes king of kings and lord of lords. There, he intercedes for his friends, and one day the kings of the earth will all bring to him their treasure. It is, I think, highly significant that the Lord Jesus himself, in explaining the Old Testament, identifies this pattern of humiliation followed by exaltation, focusing in on those two stages of the three, as the heart of the Old Testament. I wonder if you've noticed that. The most famous Bible study in history on the road to Emmaus. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have been there and heard it. I wonder what he said. Well, actually, we know what he said, pretty much, in outline anyway. We know the answer. He spent his time tracing this very pattern. Let me read you the words of Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, humiliation, exaltation, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what are the things concerning? It's what he's just said, suffering and glory. So this was not some random Bible overview that he did. It was a Bible overview to demonstrate from the Old Testament the messianic pattern of suffering followed by glory, of humiliation and exaltation. It's exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. The prophets looking for something. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. There it is again, the same pattern. That's what the prophets were about. Now this pattern of exaltation, humiliation, exaltation is therefore absolutely central to the scriptures and to the gospel. 
But it's not simply separated stages, is it? As it was for Job, so it is for Jesus, that the exaltation is the reward for obedience in the humiliation. There are a number of passages that bring this out. In the Old Testament, for example, Isaiah 53 makes this point, 53.12. Therefore I will divide with him, the servant Jesus, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. So here is his exaltation. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He has the riches he has in glory because of his obedience in death. That informs, I take it, what Paul says in Philippians 2. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And it's the point of Hebrews 2.14. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Now this gospel Bible pattern pervades narratives in the Old Testament as well, apart from Job, doesn't it? It's exactly the pattern of Joseph. It's why Joseph is a type of Christ, brought from being the special son of the father down into the depths of prison in Egypt and then exalted to be the Pharaoh's right-hand man. It's the pattern of King David, for whom his suffering is followed by his royal glory. No surprise to find, then, that it is the pattern of Job. That's the first typal connection. Here's a second. In all of that, in that happening to him, Job is a king who loses his crown and a priest who becomes a victim. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do it, but, but following Zach's session this morning, I'm really tempted to extemporize on, and a sage to whom no one now listens, the fourth wheel. I might mention that again later. But let's stick to king and priest, on which I've actually prepared something. <laughs> Always advantageous. Job's humiliation is not the humiliation of a private individual. It's not just some bloke Job who gets humiliated. humiliated. It is the humiliation of somebody who reigned as a king among his peers. Now, it is a question. I think it's pretty likely he was a king. The Septuagint, the text of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is quite different from the Hebrew at points. And it has an extra bit in which it actually identifies Job as Jobab, the king of Eden. Now, I think that's probably an invention. At least the identification with that specific king is an invention. But there's a lot of evidence for Job being a king, or at the, at the least, very, very, very kingly. And it's the chapter we read, chapter 29. But think back to the description in the third verse of the book. He is the greatest of all the people of the East. What does that mean? Who were the greatest people in the ancient world? Who were the greatest people in the modern world? Well, you might say Bill Gates, if you're measuring it by money. But in most cultures, the greatest people, and indeed the people with the most money, 
uh, are the heads of state. That makes it likely, I think. But then look at these descriptions in chapter 29 that we read. He had a seat in the city square, verse 7. When he came out, young men saw me and withdrew. The aged stood up. Well, that's pretty impressive. You imagine him sweeping through and the young receding before him and the aged standing. That's a strange thing to do in that culture, isn't it? Princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voices of the nobles was hushed. Well, before whom would you behave like that? Your king, the one above you in the social pecking order. Also, some of the things he does in the chapter, he delivers the poor and the helpless and the widows. He caused the widow's heart to sing for joy, verse 13. What kind of person does that? Well, in Scripture, the kind of person who does that is the Messiah, the Messianic King of Psalm 72, for example. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. That's the work of the Messiah King. And here is Job doing it in chapter 29. He is clothed in righteousness, verse 14, and his justice is like a robe and a turban. Now, this this clothing in righteousness, again, is something that's true of the Messiah in Isaiah 61.10. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Job is eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. Well, that too is the Messiah's work in Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. Men look to him for counsel. This is the sage point, I think. They look to him for counsel and they paid heed to his words. Verses 21 and 22. Marked contrast when the the fall fall comes um, to the way that they despise his words and they tell him to shut up and stop talking so much. So that, in verse 25 of chapter 29, he sums up. I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. He was, at the very least, a royal figure. Chapter 30, verse 1. But now. But now they laugh at me men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. This is the fall of a king, the total inversion of his status. He sums it up in chapter 19, verse 9, with a vivid picture. God has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. So Job's humiliation is not the humiliation of a private individual, it is the humiliation of a kingly figure whose crown has been removed from his head. So we don't only have a general correspondence to the pattern of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ, exaltation, humiliation, exaltation, but we have that happening to the king. And we have it happening to the priest. Think about it. The book of Job is framed, isn't it, by Job acting as a priest. What does he do in chapter 1? 
he offers sacrifices, technically burnt offerings, ascension offerings, for his children in case they've sinned. It's sort of insurance sacrifice. And at the end of the book, what does he do? Well, his friends have to bring the sacrifices, but he has to intercede for them so that they will be forgiven. A book begins with sacrifice, ends in intercession. What's it telling you? He's a priest. Now, some people object to this. I think Hartley in his commentary objects to this because he's not a Levitical priest. No, of course he's not a Levitical priest. He's more like a patriarchal priest, isn't he? Think about Noah. What does he do when he gets off the ark? He offers a burned offering. Abraham, sacrifices, altars. It's interesting to think, how did they know what to do? Where's the legislation telling them what to do? But they are acting as priests. They are priestly figures. So too Job. He's that kind of priest. Sort of family priest rather than temple priest. Patriarchal priest. But there's more to it than just the beginning and the end of the book. There are striking parallels between Job and Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3. Now, I'm sure we'll have Zechariah 3 at our fingertips. If you remember it, you'll remember that it's the only other place in the Bible where you have God and Satan arguing over a man, Satan accusing him, and God defending him. It is, in other words, strikingly similar to the whole story of the book of Job. But secondly, uh, both Job and Joshua are referred to as my servant. And thirdly, in our chapter Job 29, verse 14, when he refers to having this turban or justice as a turban on his head, it's a very unusual word used for turban, which occurs in only three other places in the Hebrew, one of which is in Zechariah 3 to describe Joshua's turban. So all those little connections to that strikingly parallel scene in Zechariah 3 confirm the picture that we have from the beginning and the end of the book of Job as a priest. And it's interesting that apparently uh, lots of medieval statues of Job depict him as a priest, more than 40 of them in medieval Europe in different cities, showing him in the garb of a priest, and that it would be why. But what happens to this priest? Well, the priest, astonishingly, becomes the victim, as in the sacrificial victim. He speaks of God cutting him open like a sacrifice. Chapter 16, verse 13. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. And it's striking in Leviticus, there's a lot of stuff about kidneys, using the same word in the sacrifices and the burning of the kidneys. So Job says a few verses later, verse 18 of chapter 16, O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place. And we remember the blood of Abel crying out from the ground for revenge and the better blood of Jesus that speaks a a better word in Hebrews. So that Job is like a victim 
an Abel-like victim, a Levitical sacrifice-like victim, whose innards are spilt on the ground and whose blood then cries out from the ground. He has, you'll recall, skin diseases, and the word that's used to describe his skin diseases is a word that's frequently used in Leviticus for skin diseases that render you unclean and for the boils that afflicted the Egyptians in Exodus chapter 9. It's one of the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28 to have one of these skin diseases. So Job is a sacrifice whose guts are spilt out on the ground, whose blood cries out for vengeance, and who is um, cultically unclean because of his skin disease, measured by the later terms of the sacrificial system. And therefore, under a covenant curse, when read according to the law of Sinai. So as that one writer, I think it's Toby Sumter in his book on Job, puts it, Job is a man who wears two hats. He wears a crown and he wears a turban. But the crown has been removed from his head and he's been dethroned and he's ceased to be the priest and has become instead the bloody victim. He is humiliated, but he is specifically the humiliated priest king figure. No surprise then that in chapter 12, verse 19, he describes what God does to kings and priests. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. And that is what had happened to him. So he entered his humiliation as king and as priest. The third typal connection. What kind of stage does this book happen on? What's the arena in which these events take place? What's the scope of the drama happening here? How, how big does it get? Well, Carl Jung, the psychologist, wrote a strange and difficult book called Answer to Job. Now, it's true. That's what the book is about. Job is answered. To some extent, he's answered. Gerhard von Rad famously said, Yahweh in no way condescends to an act of self-interpretation in the book of Job. And that is true. He doesn't exactly engage in the debates that the friends have been having. He silences Job with a vision of his majesty. But nonetheless, chapter 38, verse 2, begins by saying, the Lord answered Job. So in a sense, you could say the book is about answering Job. But really, that is far too small a vision of what this book is about. It isn't actually so much answer to Job as it is answer to the Satan. Answer to the Satan. Because it is Satan's claim at the beginning that stands over the whole book as a question. He says that Job only fears God because God has put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side and has blessed the work of his hands. Satan says, look, if instead of doing that, instead of blessing the work of Job's hands, you stretch out your hand and touch him, 
Then Job will curse you to your face. But we know that when Job's possessions and his servants and his children have been destroyed, he does not curse God. Satan again speaks of God's hand. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. His wife urges him, curse God and die. Now this is the great question of the book then. Will Job curse God or not? But more importantly, Satan has made a terrible claim which becomes the great question of the book, God is only feared for his benefits. Is that true? That's the question that hangs over the entire book. And Job is chosen because he's a man with the utmost benefits from God. So he's a test case for that claim. Now, do you see then how the prologue of Job establishes a context for the whole book, for all the events of the book. It is not just a story of one random man's suffering. In fact, its context is not really earthly at all. It grows out of events that happen in the heavenly throne room in the first two chapters when the sons of God present themselves to God. So that the drama of the book of Job is unfolding on a cosmic stage. It is a cosmic conflict between Satan and God. Though Job himself hasn't got a clue about that. Because, of course, if he knew, as lots of commentators point out, the whole thing wouldn't work. Because he'd then know he doesn't deserve it. He'd know he's innocent. His friends would know he's innocent. And they'd know there's something else going on. So he doesn't know that, and it's important that he doesn't. Now, maybe you say to me, hold on a minute, you're getting a bit exaggerated on this whole, a bit carried away with this whole cosmic conflict thing, because Satan disappears. He's only there in the first couple of chapters, and then he's gone, and then we are down to earth very much, and it's a, it's a mundane kind of book then, an earthly book about this man and his suffering. It's not really any more about the cosmic conflict. That was just to tee the whole thing up. Well, it is true that Satan seems to vanish, Some think that Satan is rebuked out of existence by Job. He's so frustrated, he goes off with his tail between his legs. Uh, C.J. Williams, in his very helpful book on Job as a type of Christ, applies Matthew 4.11 to this moment, then the devil left him as he left Jesus after the temptations. I'm not persuaded by that. For some of the liberal critics, the fact that Satan disappears from the narrative is why you have to chop the book up. You know, you know how the sort of scissor-happy liberal critics love chopping books up and rearranging them, even though there's absolutely no manuscript evidence anywhere in the world to support their rearrangements? The fact that Satan has this major role to play in the first couple of chapters and then goes, ah, two sources, two sources. There's this original sort of um, uh, narrative account from the first two chapters. It's got glued to these poems um, and, and produced the book of Job. Because they're thinking, Satan is here and he's not here. Well, again, I'm not persuaded. I'm not persuaded that we should think that Satan is now absent and that the context has changed. Because it seems to me that Satan is very much still present in the story. The whole book 
is a cosmic clash between Satan and God over Job for two reasons, which I'm going to unpack now. First of all, because Satan continues to attack Job all the way through. First of all, through his wife. Augustine called her Diaboli Adutrix, helper of the devil. Calvin calls her Organum Satani, instrument of Satan. And they were right. Because she is telling Job to do exactly what Satan wants. Now, she, of course, disappears. And then some perhaps more formidable tempters arrive. The three friends. Toby Sumter calls them the three Satans. Ah, you think, oh, come on, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? Exaggerating again about these friends. They're trying their best. They're they're, they're trying hard to encourage him. They're just not great counsellors. They just needed to go and do some more counselling courses. They've got a bit better, straighten their theology out a bit. Some of of their doctrinal wires are a little bit crossed. Not at all. This is not an abstract debate in which they are making minor technical errors. With some variation, and as an aside, um, the variation is really important... Yes, there is clear progression in the speeches and there are differences between the different characters. Though they, I think they become less as it goes on, they all end up saying the, the same horrid thing by the end. But there is variation there. But with some variation, they misrepresent God and with increasing intensity and insensitivity to Job. Now, Bildad is cruel from the outset. He starts his first speech in chapter 8 by saying that Job's words are a great wind, which is a nasty moment, because he's setting up two verses later to talk about Job's children being killed, and they were killed by the wind. Does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he's delivered them into the hand of their transgression. That's a pretty nasty way to begin. Zophar's first speech in chapter 11, I think, is a significant moment. Prior to that, the others have actually been assuring Job that he'll be okay. You see, they all hold this same theory that your acts have consequences, that bad things happen to bad people. That's the common ground of the, of the friends. But early on, they used that to say to Job, so don't worry, you'll be okay. It can't last because you're a righteous man. But in chapter 11, Zophar switches the logic round and says, well, no, because you are suffering, you're definitely a wicked sinner. He commits to that view at that point. He argues that Job is a guilty deceiver. He needs to stop sinning. He's got really nasty by the time you get to chapter 20. Let me just read you a little bit of chapter 20 to show you some of the the vehemence of it. Verse 12, talking about Job as a wicked man. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet... His food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. 
he swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. This is horrid, horrid stuff that he's saying. By the time of Eliphaz's third speech, chapter 22, he is making very, very strong accusations against Job, telling him that he is an exploiter of the needy in some detail about what he's apparently done to them. Now, in one sense, as is often noted, if you abstract the friend's statements, you can say that in certain contexts they are true. There are, in other biblical texts, statements of this act-consequence theory. It first appears here in chapter 4, verse 8, when Eliphaz says that those who plough iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Well, that sounds a bit like the covenant curses of Deuteronomy. It sounds a bit like some Psalms and some Proverbs. So sometimes people try to diminish what the friends are doing by saying that. It is also true that Job suffers a particularly horrific set of afflictions. And it's understandable how you'd look at him and think, he must be really bad because it's so bad. For example, the fire from heaven that comes down to destroy the sheep and the servants in 1 verse 6, well, the language of fire from heaven is found elsewhere in the Old Testament at Sodom and Gomorrah who were indeed pretty bad. You could also say that Eliphaz is quoted by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.19. But whatever you might say in defense of abstract versions of what the friends are saying here, in saying it to Job and in saying it the way they are saying it, they are totally and utterly wrong. And they've got it completely the wrong way around. Job is not suffering because he's so bad. He is suffering precisely because of the opposite, because he's so good. They have got the opposite idea from the truth. So what that tells us is that there isn't a heavenly scene at the beginning of the book that's then forgotten and is replaced with a completely different, distinct, earthly conversation among the friends... Rather, the friends are magnifying the pressure on Job. The physical, emotional, spiritual affliction that he's suffering is intensified by them speaking consistently, determinedly, and with increasing vehemence of his wickedness, which is not true. This is Satan's ongoing work pushing and pushing and pushing him. Will he curse God? Maybe in chapter 4, when Eliphaz talks about the terrifying spirit that whispered to him and told him what was going on, maybe that was Satan. So God pronounces his verdict at the end in 42 verse 9. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And the extent of their error is so great that it requires sacrifice of massive proportions. Seven bulls and seven rams is the kind of sacrifice you had to do on a great national occasion. 
It's part of Hezekiah's sacrifice at the rededication of the temple in 2 Chronicles 29, for example. So there is a continuity then between Satan and the friends. It's even communicated by the imagery that's used. Um, there are a number of images in the book of Job which are very revealing. Hand is one of them that I've already hinted at. Wind is another. Uh, dust and ashes is a very interesting one. You could almost preach a sermon series by picking up on some of these images and showing how they work through the text. But wind, in this case, um, well, of course, it's wind that destroy, destroys the oldest son's house, where all the children are eating and drinking. And then Job feels he's being assaulted by the wind of his friend's speech. So you see how the speeches are connected back to the affliction at the beginning. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? He asks at the beginning of chapter 16. I think it's probably ironic then when Elihu says, when he appears, he says in chapter 32 that he's got to talk because the wind or the spirit constrains me. He actually says, I'm full of wind. And you've got to think by the time you get there and Job's been accusing them of being full of wind. It's got to be an irony there from the reader's perspective. So the speeches from chapter 4 to chapter 37 continue the cosmic conflict. The scene has not changed. That's the first way that's marked. The second way it's marked is in the second of God's speeches when he talks about Behemoth and Leviathan. Now, some think these are just animals, literal animals. I think it was 1663, apparently, when Samuel Bockhart first identified them as the hippo and the crocodile. Uh, that's still quite a popular view. David Klein's, in his big word commentary on the book, takes that view too. And there is some physical correspondence between these creatures and the hippo and the crocodile. So Leviathan, for example, has ferocious teeth and scales and stirs the waters. Well, that's quite crocodile-like. But there are also some rather problematic differences. Hippopotami and crocodiles were captured in the ancient world, for example, by the Egyptians. But the point of Behemoth and Leviathan is you can't capture them. Hippos don't have a cedar-like tail, nor do they go to the mountains to feed. Crocodiles don't have a sharp underside. They also, I need to point out, uh, don't breathe fire or smoke, which is a little bit of a problem for the identification, unless you think it's just imagery. Most importantly, the other references to Leviathan in Scripture indicate that he is not simply a crocodile. In Job 3, verse 8, the rousing of Leviathan is intended by Job to curse the day of his birth, in fact, to undo the creation itself. His, his first words in chapter 3 seem to be pleading for the undoing of his birthday, but the undoing of the whole order of night and day and light and darkness. And the Leviathan in verse 8 is going to come and do that. Hard to see how a crocodile will help with that project. Psalm 74 verse 14 depicts the exodus as the conquest of Leviathan. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. Heads of Leviathan. Isaiah 27 verse 1 speaks of the eschatological judgment of Leviathan. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And the same kind of terms for dragon and serpent are used in Revelation 12.9 to describe the ancient serpent who is called the devil 
and Satan. So, far from being a crocodile, Leviathan is the Satan. Now that's hugely significant because it means that the, the book of Job, is no, it's not now a case of Satan appearing in chapters 1 and 2 and then vanishing. Satan tops and tails the book. He appears at the beginning and he appears again near the end. Now why? Well, God's first speech in chapter 38 and 39 speaks of his sovereignty over creation and his majesty, the preservation of the heavens and the animals and things. But it doesn't actually bring Job to repentance. His response is not one of repentance following that speech. He says at the beginning of chapter 40, I put my hand on my mouth, so it, it, it silences him, but it doesn't bring him all the way to repentance. Perhaps in his mind there's still a problem. Yes, God, you're in control of the animals, but my problem is not the animals. I've got a bigger problem than the animals. I'm being assaulted by evil powers. And then the second speech comes in, and God shows Job he is sovereign over the worst of the evil powers, the greatest of the evil power, the Satan, the Leviathan. And then Job responds with repentance, because now he understands who God is. So from the prologue through all the way to the end of the book, we are reading about a cosmic conflict between God and Satan played out through Job. This is no merely local story. It's not just the tale of one man's suffering. It's a story, therefore, that finds its fulfillment in the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is Christus Victor, Christ the Conqueror. It is his ministry which will bring about the decisive defeat of the Satan. It is he who will resist the devil in the wilderness. It is he who in the midst of his ministry of exorcism will say he has seen Satan fall like lightning from the sky, from heaven. It is he whose lifting up on the cross will be the moment in which this world is judged, in which the ruler of this world, as he says in John 12, is cast out. The cosmic conflict depicted in the book of Job comes to its climax in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it does so in his messianic work when as our king and priest, he goes down into the depths of humiliation, maintains his obedience, and is therefore exalted to glory at the right hand of God. So that we now don't have Satan in heaven among the sons of God because he's been cast out and instead we have the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, not to accuse, but to defend his people and to intercede for us. There is a fourth typal correspondence to which we will come tomorrow before I try to bring all of these things home for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for every glimpse 
of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. We thank you for what we see of him in this man, Job. We thank you that the Lord Jesus became a man and went down to the depths of affliction and suffering and humiliation when he died the slave's death of crucifixion. We thank you that that was the decisive defeat of our enemy, the devil, who would accuse us. Thank you that the Lord Jesus was our king and our priest, whose crown was dislodged for us and who became even the sacrificial victim for us. We pray that you wouldn't simply let these things rest in our minds, but that all that we've considered of the Lord Jesus in the book of Job and would warm our hearts and refresh our devotion to him. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Nima. <laughs>